this week on the Back Table Podcast. You can't fix what people are getting paid, right? You can't fix what the system is telling you you have to do in terms of call and running around to different hospitals and all the things that drive us all crazy, right? But you can change a little bit. And if the culture in your division is one of support and one in which people want to come to work and see those colleagues every day, you can band together against the stuff at the top. You can't always fight it. You can't always change it if they're not willing to make that change. But I think that helps change how people feel coming to work every day. And that improves their well-being at work because local culture is what they want it to be. And the higher you get up in leadership, the more control you have over what that culture looks like. But no system is perfect, not mine, not yours, and that's everywhere. And so sometimes the grass is not greener, though I have had a couple of my coaching uh, clients leave their jobs. Most of them have found ways to be happy, you know, within the work that they're doing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. This is Mark Hoffman, and I've got my co-host today, Dr. Amy Park from the Cleveland Clinic, or The Clinic, as she likes to call it. And we have a guest who is... uh, who both of us are friends with for a long time, and we're super excited that she's here. Dr. Angela Chaudhry, who is a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon and associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. She is the chief of gynecologic surgery, vice chair of faculty affairs, and director of the P2P network. Pitt's P, the number two P network. Dr. Chaudhry, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. Welcome, welcome. And would you prefer Dr. Chaudhry, Angela, how would you like us to? I think Angela is just fine today, Mark, okay. if, if I can call you Mark. Dr. Hoffman, if you, if you, if you don't. <laughs> 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 no, Mar- uh, that's great. No, thank you so much for being on the show. This is incredibly important. I mean, we could have you on to talk about anything, but um, I think talking about physician wellness, burnout, your uh, P2P program you built, um, it's really incredible and I want people to hear about it. But before we get into get into that area, tell us tell the listeners where you are now, where where are you from, where you studied, trained, um how you got to be where you are right now. Well, Mark, I uh I'm from Ohio. I'm an Ohioan. I grew up in Columbus. Did my training outside of Cleveland at Northeast Ohio for medical school and then went to WashU in St. Louis for residency. And then I've lived, you know, all over. I did my uh, mixed training down in uh, Orlando, Florida at Celebration Health. Um, and I had the opportunity to work at Hahnemann at the University of Utah before I landed here at Northwestern University. Um, I've been here now about 12 years. Okay, that's great. Yeah. And you have such a great group. I mean, everybody in that division is outstanding. I mean, what a cool group you've got. We are really lucky. Yeah, no, it's awesome. So tell us, where did your interest in physician wellness begin? I mean, I know that we're all interested in our own personal wellness, but where did yours begin uh, as a sort of a part of your career? You know, I think I've always been one of the people that colleagues would reach out to after they had a bad day. And, you know, whether it be on labor and delivery or a bad case in the operating room. And I was often, I think, that empathic ear. But really, when I got interested in it as a 
sort of more scientific or academic discipline was probably when I was myself a little burnt out, a little frustrated in my job. I felt a lot like my uh, wheels were spinning, that I didn't kind of know where I was going next. You kind of feel a bit like a cog in a wheel oftentimes when you hit that midpoint in your career. You're not really sure if you're going to get a leadership position. You're working, you know, so many hours a day, closing 20 charts at night every night and and coming in and, and booking cases out three months in advance. And I kind of sat down and said, I need to do something different. And, you know, it's interesting. My husband's uh, a surgeon as well. And he was kind of going through the same thing at the same time, which probably isn't great for your personal life. But he actually came home one day and he said, I did it. I applied and I'm going to get an executive MBA at Kellogg next year. And I was like, wait a second, what? We've been talking about this. I was supposed to be doing something too. And, um, you know, but I really started delving more at work into uh, meeting with people who were really talking about physician well-being. And I had the really exciting opportunity to meet Dr. Gaurav Agarwal, who at that time was uh, one of our physician liaisons for well-being and was in the process of starting something called the Scholars of Wellness Program at Northwestern, which is a really, really innovative idea about finding programming in individual departments that really benefited those individual departments. And his idea was, look, I'm a psychiatrist, but I don't really know what you need in OB-GYN or what you need in neurology or what you need in radiology, but I'm willing to fight to get some funding for you guys to start those programs in your department. And along the way, maybe teach you a little bit about well, well-being, physician well-being, the science of physician well-being. So I had the opportunity in 2018 to be in our inaugural class of the Scholars of Wellness at Northwestern. And what really a life-changing experience for me. At the same time, being very jealous of my husband's executive MBA program that he'd started, I actually applied uh, to get my graduate certification in organizational, organizational and executive leadership coaching through Northwestern's um, School of Education and Social Policy. They have a master's program in learning and organizational change. And that program is really designed to teach people from all disciplines the basics of coaching and put them all together with people from all these different disciplines and begin to coach each other. And that was a year-long graduate program that I did. Um, and really, that solidified my interest in physician well-being. And I actually found my path, that path where my wheels were spinning when it all started, to move forward and really find my place uh, doing this work around physician well-being. It's incredible. I mean, it, and that, I think we've all been there, um, where you have those moments and you're just like, I, there's no way. There's not, like, this can't continue. But hearing that, Looking at someone like you who's done all these amazing things to think that, okay, they had they had a hard time at one point too, or it wasn't all part of their plan from day one, um, I think gives a lot of us out there that are, you know, in situations like that that makes you realize just keep just keep plugging away. But it doesn't mean you have to be burned out in the process though. And so that's where I think the challenge is it it does get hard. Yeah, I was just going to say it was it, I have to applaud you and your husband for turning that frown upside down and leveraging your midlife crisis or whatever you want to call it. Malaise, quiet quitting. You're too Gen X to quiet quit. So true. <laughs> Asian and Gen X, maybe so those like, together. Yeah. But anyway, I, I did a similar program in D.C. with Dan Marshalik. It was a MedStar wellness, uh, wellness scholars program. And we had representatives from each department. And I, I think, you know, it is super individualized to each specialty and also what the needs are. I mean, it could be call, it could be, I don't know, just whatever it is. What, what did you find when you did these two programs? 
What were like the high level things that you thought were concepts that you brought to the fore, do you think? Well, I think one thing is when people talk about physician well-being, they put so much focus on caring for themselves. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't always care for myself. I don't always eat right. I don't always perfectly, you know, exercise or treat my family the right way. Oh, I saw that picture of you in Chicago, Mag, jogging. (laughs) I am a runner. I do run on a regular basis. So you're right. I do get my exercise in. But, you know, I find that so much of the focus when we talk about physician well-being historically has been around how we care for ourselves and what we can do as individuals to be better, to be more resilient, to plug away and get the work done. And frankly, it's not about us, right? It's about them. It's actually that, like, our organizations don't always support us to do the things that we need to do. And so, you know, that was one of the great things about this program. This is organization sponsored. We had a little bit of protected time to get the work done that we needed. It was actually our organization investing in individuals to help make change in the department. So that was what I wanted to ask you. You know, you mentioned you've got this, you know, year long program you're doing. There was a scholars of well. I mean, I read that <laughs> scholars of wellness. I'm like, what planet do you live on that you get to be a scholar of wellness? I mean, I love where I work. I love my institution, but I, I'm, I don't have to get online to find out we don't have a scholars of wellness program. I do think that having an institution that understands burnout, that understands these things is a huge part of prevention. And so, you know, I think we, we could talk all day about all the the yoga mats and those things, but I think you and I both know. And so that was actually my, that was my chief grand rounds in 2010 was called happiness in medicine because I was a med student and met so many miserable people. And I was like, if I'm doing all this, I'm not going to be miserable. And I, you know, in residency, they're like, do you want to talk about, you know, fibroids and a minimally invasive surgery? And I said, no, I'm talking about happiness. I'm talking about uh, how not to be, I, I basically spent three months of research, researching how not to be miserable. And I kept, you know, reading uh, Shana Felt's work and all that stuff. I, I just kept finding the same thing. It's not about the person, it's about the system. And at the end of the talk, I was so proud of myself because Mahmoud Ishmael, who's like, we you know, called him Papa Smurf. He's like the senior MFM at University of Chicago. And he said, you know, thank you, thank you for the talk and said, I just talked to this other guy and this, th- Dr. Moad had like trained everybody there years before. He said, I just got off the phone with them, just catching up. And he said, Mahmoud, we screwed up. We worked too hard. We should have spent more time at home. And this is a guy who's retired, and he's the one who pushed everybody to be excellent the whole time. And he's calling you know, the most senior person in our department saying, man, we blew it. And so I'm saying this as a resident who hasn't worked an actual day on, you know, outside of residency. But to have him validate this research and the, what, this conclusion that I had come to, that this system will tear you apart if you don't have a system that takes care of you and don't put yourself, don't let it happen. Like, don't put yourself in that situation. So picking a job for me. Moving to Kentucky, being around family, having a five-minute commute, these kinds of things that I felt like I didn't want to put myself in a position where I felt like the system didn't care. But, you know, you're at Northwestern, so they've got this amazing Scholars of Wellness program. Like, I'm like, I'm just like fascinated by this thing. It's, it's incredible. But what do you do when you're in a place where you don't have that? I guess that's the big thing. First of all, I want to hear about the, I want to hear about how the scholars of wellness became P2P. I want to hear about this whole thing because I think this is how you take this idea and make it into something bigger is really an incredible, incredible story. Yeah. So we we were able to start this uh, P2P program. So P2P stands for peer-to-peer support. 
It's not rocket science. It's really just caring for others. I mentioned I was always that person that people would come to after they had a really bad day in the operating room. And I found that so many people came to me and said, you know, when we have a bad day, when we have a complication, nothing good comes out of that. We can all agree with that, right? We've all been in a complication. But they said, you know, here at Northwestern, it felt like it was worse than that. It was you had the complication. You beat yourself up about it. You cared for your patient. You didn't know what was going to happen, how they were going to do. By Friday, you were on M&M. You had to present in front of 200 people. Uh, or your resident did, and you had to defend yourself in front of that group. Then it went to peer review, which is great for quality and patient safety. But again, an anonymous group of people reviewing your case and deciding whether you had done something appropriate or potentially negligible, and potentially reporting that all the way up to the medical executive committee. Not to mention, you still have to take care of the family. You still have to take care of that patient, talk to them, and ensure everything's okay. And then we all know what the statute of limitations on legal cases are, right? Even still, you can get sued after all of that. So I surveyed my department and I said, guys, tell me, does this sound like something you think would be useful? And everyone said, oh, my God, yes. Having somebody to talk to a support network after these adverse events could be so, so beneficial. So we started in our department and we started out just by training about eight, ten of my colleagues who I felt like were also empathic doctors And we're trained by one of our psychiatrists at Northwestern in psychological first aid and some of the different coping and conversational strategies around peer support. And we sort of went out and we started advertising. We had risk management sent us cases and we had about 35 referrals within the first four to six months. And you get time for this. That does not sound easy. You know, interestingly, we weren't getting a ton of time. Actually, still volunteer peer supporters. But what we've actually done is we've expanded that peer support network. So no single peer supporter is getting asked to do this on a weekly basis. It's just too much for any single person to do. And so it's really about creating a community and a culture of people who support, who know how to support, who feel comfortable supporting, and then having a network of ways to get those people to those supporters when they need them. So very quickly, you know, we had done this at in OB-GYN and our, our now chief wellness executive, Dr. Agarwal, came to me and said, well, this is the program I'm picking from scholars this year to start expanding to the hospital. What do you think? Can you run it for the hospital? And I was like, whoa, that's a big change from my, you know, 260 uh, person department all the way up to now the entire hospital, which is a very large hospital, as you all know, at Northwestern downtown. And So the first thing I said is, sure, but I need to know that the integrity of the program will remain the same, that we'll have supporters who are empathic, that uh, we'll have the ability to get people to when they need it uh, to the right people. And we need a functional way to support those people. And my biggest caveat about the program was it had to be confidential. This wasn't something where I had to now report to a chair or um, my peer supporters could be under potential legal review or something because they talked to a doc about an adverse event. And so the first thing we did was spend about four months going through our legal legal office and ensuring that these conversations that we had were completely protected, completely confidential. And it worked out. We were actually able to get those protections by working and being under our medical staff office. And I was able to train our initial cohort of about 20 docs. We actually had uh, Joe Shapiro is one of the uh, surgeons uh, out at uh, Harvard who started a peer support program at Harvard years ago and had ran that program for years and has published 
on the uh, specific details about the peer support conversation and really sort of became our mentor the way we wanted to model our program. And uh, and we kind of took off running. And now we've continued to expand. We're across our entire Northwestern system, 13 hospitals now. And we're now expanding uh, our services to nurses and advanced practice providers as well. So it's really, really exciting. How many people are doing the support? How many individuals do you have? So we've now trained about 75 peer supporters across the system. And I am actually have another training with about eight more next week. And so we continue to expand our peer supporter network to ensure that uh, no single supporter finds it too onerous to do. But it's interesting. I just surveyed our peer supporters recently, a few weeks ago, in fact, and we got feedback from them that they really didn't find it onerous. And in fact, they felt more connected with the institution and more connected with their colleagues serving in this peer supporter role, as you would imagine, as people who are empathic and do this in your own institutions. So that was really, really heartwarming to hear, as well as really gave us good information about how we can continue to expand this across our different service lines. Do you get any protected time to do this? Like, I mean, you're you have a leadership role in this, obviously, but then also how about the peer counselors, I guess? Currently, our peer supporters are all volunteer, and so we don't take a lot of time from them, to be honest. We try to take as little time from them as possible. We do do a, you know, a training, and we're actually reverting a lot of that to a virtual training to try to limit their time commitments to that. And, you know, I have a, a routine um, email that I send out to my supporters when I have a referral and when I'm looking for a peer supporter. My email, the first thing it says is, I have this, peer, uh, this interaction that I think you'd be a great supporter for. Do you have the bandwidth to reach out this week? That's the first thing I ask, because if they don't have the bandwidth, if they're not in a good place to support, they're not going to be a good supporter. And it's just going to be a source of stress and burnout for them rather than something that creates that connection. That's the first thing I do. And the nice thing is we have so many supporters to choose from that if the first one says no, then we're able to move on. But, you know, we really have um, an office of well-being with a number of doctors that are protected for some of their different roles. But our peer supporters are actually all volunteer. Wow. I, I'm curious because it sounds like you were able to scale up really quickly across the system. And I know that you've been giving these presentations on the national level at the American Medical Association and lots of different venues. What would be your advice to systems that do want to employ this? Like, What are some things that really helped or hindered or things you wished you'd known along the way? Because it sounds like Joe Shapiro really gave you a lot of insight and I'm sure operational tips and inspiration. Um, but, you know, every system's different. So I'm just curious about your insights. You know, we really approach the program and actually all of our scholars of wellness programs, we really use our quality improvement, process improvement metrics. We use the DMAIC method to actually create all of our process and programming. And the goal of that is really to integrate it into the hospital system as all of our quality and patient safety measures are integrated in. So I would say finding what works in your hospital to get a program off the ground and running is one of the most important things to look at. I would say even more important than that is having leadership support. We all know that these programs cannot survive, cannot be funded, cannot continue without uh, top-down leadership really saying that this is an important thing. And we're very lucky. Our executive president now, Dr. Chrisman, was formerly our CMO when this all started, was really, really engaged and involved in bringing physician wellness to the forefront. And so I think uh, those are some of the important things to think about. But I often, and, and some, you guys have heard some of my lectures on this, I often say to people when they say, you know, I just don't think my leadership's going to listen. 
I hear you. I felt that years ago. But, you know, times are changing. And uh, I think our leadership is recognizing how important our workforce is because we really are lacking workforce right now. I think at all of our institutions, we're lacking our nursing workforce. We're lacking our medical assistant workforce. Physicians are the next ones. We're the next ones to go. And I think um, I think that our leadership is starting to recognize how important it is that they really need to invest in these workforce strategies to keep the well-being of their workforce supportive and and good. Well, it's a, it's a cheap measure to save money and turnover. I mean, I always say it's important to care about people, and I do. But even if you don't, it's financially smart to care about your people because, like you said, there's a lot of places to work. There's a lot of demand for these jobs, and people can talk with their feet and just take off if they're not happy. And so just ignoring the fact that we should care about other people and, you know, understand this is a really hard job. The job's hard enough. These types of programs, I imagine, and I guess that's a question I would have for you. I mean, in terms of like, you know, retention and those kinds of things, what are the, what are the metrics you use to show that your program is working? Well, we're pretty lucky. So far, we've been given um, a little bit of a clean slate in terms of, hey, get this programming started and let's see what we can do. As we continue to expand, certainly we're going to um, have to continue to show metrics such as things like retention, things like well-being scores, which, by the way, are never going to change based on an individual intervention. So that's really, really hard to show. And luckily, we've had some of that support to say we recognize a well-being score isn't going to change overnight based on one or two small interventions. At the same time, though, I think doing culture surveys and trying to identify where the pain points are in your workforce is one of the most important things to evaluate. And recognizing that if you create programming, whatever it is, be it a peer support program or another source of a well-being program, that you're actually giving people what they need, where their pain points are, and then and then finding that next pain point and continuing to change and modify your programming such that you can continue to improve those small pain points. The only way you're going to change culture is to continue to make those very small changes over time. It's not going to happen overnight. You know, I, I was going to just draw this analogy. You know, as you both know, I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in surgical ergonomics. And I see this as, as part of the rubric of wellness and culture change. Really, you know, when you look at the workforce issues that Angela is alluding to, I mean, we're literally in the middle of a nursing crisis. And there's just not enough, you know, we're not training enough nurses. It's it's more expensive. I mean, it's they, the nursing instructors get paid less to, you know, teach than to do clinical. So we have that. We haven't increased the number of residency slots that much. So and then we're we have a demographic bulge. The patients are aging. The physicians are aging. And we're going to have a physician workforce shortage shortly. I mean. The AAMC just, they release a report every couple of years. And the last one I looked at, they were projecting 15 to 30,000 physician shortage by 2030 in terms of our specialties, which is, you know, we're included in, in surgical subspecialties. And, um, you know, I just talked to a friend of mine and she was like, we're not, the institution isn't even, their enterprise is not even building anymore because they don't have staff to fill it. Physicians, nurses nursing assistants, all of them. So it is crucial to retain the, the the talent that you have. And it's expensive. The turnover is very, very expensive. It's what, a million bucks to replace a surgeon, I think, in general, like a trauma surgeon, just the loss in revenue. We've talked about this in other shows as well, but 
turnover is killer. I mean, killer to a department. To, you know, we you know if you lose somebody, just 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 the, a year and a half, you know, waiting for the next hiring cycle to get people to come through, onboarding them. It just it it's it it's so much work and it's stress and added, added work for everybody else. And so you know, we touched upon this a little bit earlier on, but you know, I think we've all learned a lot about this more recently burnout but it it it, it's like you said it's not you you're not the problem it's the system that you know the analogy i've always used after my talk was it's like turning the toaster up to 11 and blaming the toast for burning you know what do you mean you can't take it like we're giving you more work we're giving you less time off we're paying you relatively less and we're then having more people sue more often and what what's your problem here's a yoga mat and that's when people just blow their tops off and go crazy because we are we have a system that is burning people out and so this sounds like an amazing resource like you said to address the pain points and those and those pain points that are there and that is absolutely critical piece of the puzzle but the other end is how do you how do you work to turn down the oven I think this is one of the hardest things. And you don't know, just in the last few days, how many conversations I've had with colleagues about exactly this topic. You know, I, I was on a call earlier and it was a conversation about they told us that we need to decrease our two week, you know, two week waiting period for new patients or whatever. And they want us to go out to a satellite hospital. And by the way, they just gave us our new compensation package. And after we hit our RVU targets, all target all RVUs after that are worth 10% less. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Yes, yes. So this is the conversation I had earlier. And I said, you know, this is exactly what we're all talking about is we can fix lots of little pain points. But until we work to really improve that culture, we absolutely are going to see physicians leave. And how many times have you guys heard from senior colleagues? Well, these new attendings, they just don't want to work like we used to, right? Like that's a common thing we all hear. And sometimes we're old enough now to actually sometimes say it ourselves and catch ourselves saying it, right? I would never say such a thing. <laughs> but, you know, this idea of, of work-life integration, this new term, people are moving away from balance, which I think is good. But this idea of work-life integration, it's like our, our new junior attendings, our residents, they actually understand it. They do it. They perform it. And guess what? That is the future of healthcare. That is where we're moving to. And this push, push, push that we're seeing that all of us are feeling on a regular basis, someone younger than us is going to figure that out and they're going to push back. Well, I kind of feel like I was advanced for my age because I did see my dad always said no one ever says on their deathbed they wish they'd spent more time at the office. And he was always like, yeah, go work hard, do something cool. But like, it's also just work. I mean, my dad's an internist, but he wanted to be a chemist and his chemistry professor was like, I'm a, I'm a chemist, don't be a chemist. And so he went to med school because it was a good job, not because he had this passion or, you know, this. he was a great doctor, but he was also like, it's just, it's a job. And I think that those, like I was telling you about Dr. Ishmael, I think there's this idea that it somehow needs to be your life and everything else can fit in if there's room. And I always felt like, no, I'm not going to be a great doctor if I'm not a, a happy person, if I'm not, you know, if I'm miserable all the time. And the data actually was completely supportive of that, that unhappy doctors our worst doctors, unhappy doctors, unwell doctors have higher rates of complications. They, you know, and then once you have a complication, you get less well and you have more complications and the cycle is terrible. We have the highest suicide rates. We passed the dentists a few years ago and it's like, this is not a small little blip. This is an absolute frightening trend. 
Well, I, I see generationally what Angela is alluding to in terms of work-life integration. And and I know that, like I alluded to quiet quitting before, but I also think that the, you know, it's like the yin and the yang. It's like the other side of the coin. It's like creating boundaries and and then just being like, you know what? The ask is X, Y, and Z. And they're, I think a lot of them are like, no, thanks. Or, you know, or I, I, I'm going to put that in my bucket, like when I'm at work or what have you, but it's, it's very, but I also think that it's good because the other part that I think is really good about creating these boundaries is they're like, I am not going to put up with sexual harassment or these other, you know, predatory behavior or derogatory comments, because I am not, I do we have bad self-esteem Gen X? I don't know, but this is the kind of stuff that they're not putting up with. Like I think back on my medical career and the some of the behavior I witnessed throughout my medical student resident career, it's like laughable now, you know, and I don't think that a behavior is acceptable in our current day culture. Maybe, I mean, definitely not an OBGYN, maybe in other specialties, but I do, that gives me hope though, in terms of what you're describing in terms of the younger generation is like, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to work, but I'm not going to let it take over my life or what have you. And I think that's probably healthy. Like, I think it's, it's, it's something that, um, generationally we do, uh, have to keep in mind. And then also, you know, what you're alluding to about the regrets. I, did you guys read that article on JAMA surgery? And it was about the survey of retired surgeons. No, no, I didn't. Oh yeah, see that. Angela knows. You you tell us. I mean, I thought it was really fascinating. I I didn't get deep into the article, Amy. So you probably know more details than me. But this idea of what surgeons regret after they finish practice, right? And what are we going to leave with? What is our, you know? I think many of us. I think Gen X doesn't have low self esteem. I think we came, by the way, in this into this practice in an understanding hierarchy and sort of getting pummeled by our parents about respecting your elders, right? And I think that was actually where we came from. It wasn't low self-esteem. We just went along with it because that was how we were trained as kids, right? And I think we're moving into a whole world of psychologic safety, right? Of where everything is okay to say. It's okay to question. And I think it's amazing. It's okay to be curious. These are all the things that we want. And because of that, they're not dealing with some of the things we're dealing with. And, you know, these retired surgeons sort of said, why did we do these all these years? What did we, what did we, why did we, why did we deal with all this for so long? Right? Yeah. Amy, what else, what else is in the article? Remind me. It was, it was a survey. And basically the thing, the number one thing, like it was like 40% of surgeons, something, some big proportion wish that they, or maybe it was even more, wish that they had spent more time with their families. There's an abundance of literature. And again, Korean Rounds 2010, it's not new. Everybody was like, yeah, we shouldn't have done this. Like the, the regret. I mean, it was like all when, when I was doing this talking, like plenty of my life and career, I was like, these people are like warning us, don't do the same stuff. And I think in trying to do that in, in an environment where not everybody else had read as much as I had, there was that sense that, oh, you know, they just don't want to do as much or whatever. And like, and listen, I can spend all day talking about building a mixed program in a place where it was challenging. I did, I'd put in plenty of work, but this idea that I was supposed to care about myself was almost like foreign. It was like, what, what are you, are we talking about you as a person? Cause that's not part of this conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I love seeing residents and students that like have lives, you know, and like, you know, and, and take time for things. It's, it, it is encouraging. I think it's really important. And I hope that that trend continues, but also with the workforce shortages, I worry that having boundaries, I mean, that was what John Delancey, you're going to Michigan, I'm sure you guys know him, said, easy for him to say, obviously where he was in his career, but he said, whenever somebody asks you at work to do something, you tell them of the things that I'm doing right now, what would you like me not to do so I can do the thing that you're asking me to do? Because I was full-time this morning. I came in this morning at a full-time job. You're asking me to do something else. So what would you like me to give up? And they usually go try to find someone else to do that thing. That's a great piece of advice. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I use that all the time. Okay. So, but I think when you're starting out, when you're trying to find your place in an institution, in a practice, that can be a really hard thing to do. Again, easy to say when you've had the career he's had, but I do think it's important to set boundaries at a younger in an earlier part of your career. and it, but, it, but it can be tough. It can be scary. Well, I, I often tell young attendings, because I hear this a lot, and I think so much of this is what really mentorship is all about, right? It's about helping our junior faculty, our junior attendings, figure out what's really important and what they should be doing to really advance the careers to the goals that they think they want in five years or seven years or 10 years. And really setting those boundaries such that they're only really doing things that really helped them. And I, I, I'm i like the perfect example of not doing that. I, I floundered for years trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I said yes to everything. And I was burnt out, you know, all the things. But I think the other side of it is, you know, as, as a woman who has three children and, you know, went through the early part of my academic career having kids, I hear often from my junior faculty members that they just have so much guilt. They have so much guilt about like not being with their kids and not being with their family. And, and like, I'm just here for any listeners to tell you that, like, I had all that guilt. It was terrible. I've got twins, three kids. And um, I stopped doing obstetrics about six years ago now. I did obstetrics after my mixed fellowship for years. And uh, my child, one of my children asked me about a year after and said, oh, mom, are you going in to deliver a baby? And I was like, no, no, there's an ectopic. I got to go do a surgery tonight. I'm going in and see you guys later. And my son said, Mom, why don't you to deliver babies anymore? And I was like, don't, don't you know I stopped delivering babies last year? And he said to me, Mom, why'd you do that? And I was like, well, remember, I was gone for a week at a time on nights. I never saw you. I was never home for dinner. I didn't get to go to your school activities. And he was like, I don't remember any of that, Mom. I just thought it was really cool that you delivered babies. And I was like, oh, okay, right. Like, that just reminds you that, like, what you're teaching your kids, even by going to work and not necessarily being present with them all the time, they're getting a great life lesson. And, you know, they're there to really still enjoy you when you're there. So I would say, like, go to work, set your boundaries, do what you think is going to help you set your career up, but then come home and be really present with your kids and share your work with them. And your kids are very lucky, obviously. And but that's where burnout can make that second part the difficult thing, right? Where you had a hard day, you worked hard, you may have done some interesting things, but when that uncertainty that toughness from the day comes into your life at home and you can't just be, you know, present dad. That that was a thing for me was like almost the opposite. I was trying to build a career and I was getting no referrals and I was in a place that didn't know what MIGS was. And it wasn't even the hours worked. It was like just the stress and the uncertainty. And every minute of my life was consumed with like, did, it was, did I make a huge mistake or have I, have I, have I made many huge mistakes? And so 
that stress and pressure, I mean, you know, burnout can look different, you know, for, for each person, but you know, being able to create that boundary, like Amy said, those separation of work and home is something that not a lot of us do very well naturally. And, and something that we need to teach from the beginning, right? From when you get into med school and I tell med students, you know, learn how to be a person now. It doesn't get easier. Once you graduate from training, it's not like they give you the keys to the fancy car. Here's the private school entrance. Like it's still really hard to be a doctor when you're attending. It's still really hard to do all of this and you have to figure out how to fit life in now and get used to that. Like make that part of your education as being a person, being having a life while you're doing med school. So you are used to it later when it's also still important. Well, I think that we touched on this when we talked to Kara King about surgical coaching um, in terms of medicine, generally speaking, does is not lend itself to reflection because the path is so regimented before you. And I just wanted to talk to you about what you, how, you know, you did this training and have this formal background now with this uh, certification and, and coaching and you have this peer-to-peer support. Like, what did you, what were some of the high-level concepts that you got from your formal studies and you sort of employed them into the, into practice? And then what did you learn just on your own? So I really think actually the best part about my coaching program is that I was coached by non-doctors on a regular basis who were my peer group of coaches. And in doing that, I actually had this amazing resource of people not in medicine who don't understand anything about our systems and how they work. And we would talk every day about things that happened at work or things we wanted to work on in our careers. And they all were sort of on this journey of finding themselves and where they were going next. And I would come in every day with some, you know, something that blew up at the hospital that day at work and in my in my life. And uh, and every day they'd be like, you bring such great things to coaching every day. And I was like, yeah, that's how the hospital is every day. There's there's so much to talk about, so much strength, right? New opportunities for learning when it's disasters. Did you, yeah, did exactly. you drop the word vagina? Because that goes over well with non, um, non-vagina surgeons. <laughs> for sure. My peer coaching group was all in on it, all in on the word vagina. They, they, were, they loved it. All the other tables are looking going, why are they having so much fun and laughing so much over there? I don't understand why they're, they got the fun table. Oh my God, that's hilarious. So so that was one of the things I took. And actually, in that self-coaching of, of being coached by, by peers outside of medicine, I actually discovered how crazy some of the things that we do are, some of the things, some of the, some of the ways that we get in the weeds at work on a regular basis. And they were like, what are you doing? Why does that matter? Who cares? I mean, these are like the things my coaches were saying to me, like, like, tell me more, but I don't know if I can hear more. This sounds terrible. And so, you know, they they um they really sort of grounded me in this idea of it's okay to come out of the weeds a little bit and think about yourself in a bigger picture and sort of reflect on what your next steps are, where you're going next. So it, you hear the word a lot, mindfulness, right? I um I'm like the opposite of yoga, right? I run really hard and like to sweat every day. Um, and so I don't meditate. That's like not my thing. But I had a professor who said to me, Angela, you use mindfulness every single day. And I was like, uh-huh, yeah, I'm not a meditator. You go do you and I'm going to do me. And he's like, no, I absolutely know it. You've told me about your running regimen. You're out in the dark. It's cold in Chicago. You're running on the lake by yourself. You don't wear headphones. You just listen to like the lake or the noises in the park. 
And you think, right? And your 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 mind is blank or you're planning your day, whatever it is. He's like, that's mindfulness. He's like, you walk into the OR, you're focused. And yes, you may be thinking about your kids at school and you might be doing this, but really when things hit the fan, you are in the moment there to care for your patient. You have mindfulness. You do it better than most people. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. I hate meditation, but okay. He's right. And it's about capturing that feeling, that feeling when you're in the moment at work or when you're on that really cold run and actually being able to utilize it on a regular basis, maybe in a meeting where you're in the weeds about something so stupid and crazy at work that you can pull yourself out and look at the big picture and be like, this is not important. I don't need to comment or this is important and I'm going to wait till the end, let people get out all their angry feelings and then tell them what we should do right, right? And and I think that was a skill that I should have had before, but I wasn't very good at. And it's a skill I really t- take with me every day into my leadership roles now. So that's probably one of the biggest things, Amy, I took out of this coaching certification. Well, also, it's, it gives you perspective. What it sounds like is these non-medical people gave you perspective and like reframed your getting into the weeds with like, so I don't know, greater mission. You know, you're, you have an you recognize things for what they are. You can label this as like a, this is like a session where we need to get out the feelings and process and come to this as a group together. And sometimes there's just, you just have to take that journey together is what I'm hearing you're saying, right? Absolutely. Perspective, reframing, finding that way in your brain to shut it off for a minute and think before you speak. You know, all those things I think really are what like came to me out of this coaching thing. And that was just for me, right? I learned all these great skills about how to coach other people, but that's actually what I learned and really took into my own leadership roles from the coaching that I learned. I find that super interesting because I have, I'm like fast reactor. You know, you tell me something, I'll start laughing on my face. I'm like totally not a poker face, you know, and I feel like that's something that I could definitely work on. Well, that's what I was saying a minute ago, you know, emotional intelligence. That's one of the things in my chair had always, you know, as I get earlier in my career, wanted me to work on because I cared a lot. I was very vocal for my patients. It was always about, we, we have to change everything now because patient care needs to be improved because I'm seeing all these things that are, you know, I thought you brought me in to fix these things. And I realized that, you know, part of change is getting people to change with you, is getting people to come along. And so by reacting and emotionally immediately responding, I felt like I was being the biggest advocate for my patients by being the most vocal person. But culture change is hard. And, you know, the whole other comment, we can have a whole other, you know, show about about culture change, because that's something that happens very slowly over time. And when you're like, you want this to be fixed now. And so with Things like burnout with, you know, wellness and those things. You mentioned culture earlier. One of the things I've read about culture, though, is that it comes from the top. Culture does not change. As I was listening to the HBR podcast, I think it was a, a, a Northwestern MBA professor talking about it and said, you know, it comes from the top. And the guy said, well, what if you're not at the top and you want to change culture? And his response was, be prepared to die on the mountain. I was like, oh, <laughs> I was not on the top of the mountain. But I think it's true. And I'm lucky that I've got a good boss who like, that was her goal was to create a culture that I was on board with. And I'm as a, as a now a division leader, I get to create a culture in my division. Every new hire gets a copy of the no asshole rule. And we are very strict about how we treat and care for one another. And 
you know, culture change is hard. And I think that's one of the hardest things about being an institution. If the culture isn't right, and it clearly seems like where you are, the culture is built for this. I mean, that is what it is. What's your advice to people? And, and I think I've got that where I am. And I feel that's one of the reasons why I came back to Kentucky and why I've stuck around. But what's your advice to people who are in an institution where like, they don't care about it? It's not important to them. And we all know that's a bad decision, but like, Sometimes that's the, that's, the, that's the hand you're dealt. You know, it's funny, Mark. I, I coach a little bit on the side, and I coach some colleagues from around the country, and that's often a question I hear, right? I feel like my worth isn't here. I can't change what's happening around me, and they feel really out of control. And sometimes that answer is, that's not the right place for you. It's a bad place to work, right? But what I often give the advice to, especially when people, like you said, like you're a division leader in a very large organization, and you can make the culture in your division how you want it. Now, you can't fix what people are getting paid, right? You can't fix what the system is telling you you have to do in terms of call and running around to different hospitals and all the things that drive us all crazy, right? But you can change a little bit. And if the culture in your division is one of support and one in which people want to come to work and see those colleagues every day, then the stuff on top, you can band together against the stuff at the top. You can't, you can't always fight it. You can't always change it if they're not willing to make that change. But I think that helps change how people feel coming to work every day. And that improves their well-being at work because local culture is what they want it to be. And the higher you get up in leadership, the more control you have over what that culture looks like. But I do, I agree with you. Like no system is perfect. Not mine, not yours, right? Um, and there's places where my my hospital is so supportive. You know, you heard about our wellness programming and all this stuff. And, and there's still a lot of complaints, right? There's still a lot of pain points that, that we need to work on. And that's everywhere. And so my other advice to people is like, sometimes the grass is not greener, though I have had a couple of my coaching uh, clients leave their jobs. Most of them have found ways to be happy, you know, within the work that they're doing. No, I, I think that's, and that's been my experience. I love that. Creating culture where you are, um, even if it's not the institutional culture. I mean, I, I started, you know, I had no division. I had no teams. I had no people. Um, it starts in the OR. I'm going to create a culture in the OR where we use first names and we treat each other with respect. And then the techs that work with me and like me are like, this is our OR. No one else gets to come in here because they know it's a place where they'll be treated with respect and, and with kindness. And we're going to do great things. And it's going to be because we did it, not because I did it. And then with clinic and the people on your team are like, oh, this is like a fun place to work and we get treated well. And all of a sudden, and I will say the greatest joy of my career in the last 10 years has been being able to be that umbrella for all the stuff that's coming up that may not be what we want to come down. I'll deal with the stuff up there. In my little world here that we all get to work in, it's going to be nice. At the very least, you're going to come to work and it's going to be fine and no one's getting yelled at and we're going to work hard and we're going to make mistakes. And when we do, we're going to help each other fix the mistakes and then we're going to go home and then do it again tomorrow. And that's all there is. And that's been honestly like the thing. I like surgery. I like taking care of patients, all those things. But the true joy, the thing that like, you know, fills up my heart every day the most is my people, my team, knowing that like I've been able to do that thing that, man, I wish someone had done that for me. I mean, the way my chair did, the way, I, think, I mean, she, she, she protected me and gave me that opportunity to succeed. Um, but that's where, even in the small, subtle bit, in your clinic, in your, in your one OR, 
to be able to create that culture and just whatever's happening above you to do that for others. I think we have this little book for, you know, when our kids are little, you know, be a bucket dipper or a bucket filler. You know, I think it was a huge bucket filling opportunity for the people around me, but most importantly, it just made my days way better. And that's where I feel like no matter where you are, you can create small systems. I do think at some point, if it's toxic, you should get out of there. I agree with you. But like, that's been the thing that's made made me the most happy along the way. And I love the idea of, you know, local leaders. I have so many docs who say to me, well, but I don't lead anything. I'm not in charge of anything. I can't make the change. And I say exactly that. Of course, you're a leader. Every day in clinic, you run your team, your medical assistant, your nurse, your front desk staff, they look to you as a leader. In your operating room, you better be the leader, right? Like you better be able to run your operating room and you get to choose how that runs. You're the leader. And so many people don't recognize that as a leadership opportunity to really make some of that, those small culture changes on a daily basis. I agree with that so much. I think that the, at least here at the clinic, it's hard to be a leader if you're not clinically excellent and like people respect you in that regard, like the kind of person that you are to, to work with. So, so that is so important and you build your reputation one brick at a time and I don't think people realize it's not a linear path sometimes. I mean, if, you, if people recognize if you are doing a good job, trying to do the best job you can at all points, then that garners respect. Um, I just wanted to circle back to something you said earlier in our conversation that struck me, which is when you talked about a colleague and, you know, getting a complication and then you have to go to M&M and you have to defend this, your complication and all of these other things. I'm just curious about what your thoughts and take are on quality and safety culture, because I think it's great and it's super important. But if you're young in your career, it could push you out of operating. And uh, I just wonder about that because, you you know, you have to do this focused PPE evaluation sometimes. And, you know, as section head, I have to sign off on these things and go in front of our quality and safety people and explain it and address all the points. There's an audit that happens afterwards. You know, it's like a big deal. It's supposed to be not be punitive. Let's just make that clear. I know that. But it feels punitive to people who are beating themselves up already about the thing. It absolutely does. (laughs) It absolutely does, Amy. I mean, I too, you know, in my chief of gynecology role, quality and patient safety is like my whole world in the gynecologic world at Northwestern. And I absolutely agree. Like, Quality and patient safety, it's necessary. We've made huge strides over the last 20 years in in medicine, right, to improve that culture and to really be able to try to standardize and, and get better care out to patients. And that's, you know, that's what we're really all here to do, right? We're talking about ourselves today, but really we're doing this job to make sure we're giving quality and uh, quality care to our patients. But I do think it's very punitive. And I think the reason that it feels punitive is because often the buck stops with the physician. And is that what it should be? Should it should the buck stop with the physician or should the buck really stop with the organization? Because we know in every single complication that occurs, there is a variety of system issues that come into play. There absolutely are every single time. And yet the buck stops with us. The liability stops with us. Right. And and my pushback often when I hear things from nursing or from leadership saying we really need to do this because the nurses don't like the way we do it, I say you know, I understand that, but unfortunately, the liability still falls on me, and this is what I feel comfortable doing, or this is how I feel like it has to go. And I think that is the problem, is that we have 
this quality and safety culture, which really should be good and not punitive. But then it is punitive because the buck still stops with the physicians. The physicians can get individually sued rather than a system being sued. And and that, I think, is really hard for physicians to wrap their heads around. And I think it makes it really hard for, for us to engage in that quality work and not feel that it's punitive or very, uh, very attacking as an individual. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think my friend is a, is a peer support person at Beth Israel. And she, when you especially, I mean, it's terrible with gynecologic surgery, but I think the obstetric outcomes, especially so, so, so difficult. And then the liability that goes along with that and the second guessing, and it pushes people out of careers. I mean, we lose people because of not feeling supported or having a one bad, you know, baby or whatever, like AFE. AFE is actually, I think that I've I've seen three physicians stop practicing because of the trauma associated with witnessing or taking care of a, a woman who died of AFE. I mean, it's incredibly important to acknowledge the work you're doing in terms of the the peer support because nobody will understand that like another obstetrician, I think, ultimately. But also there's also cross interdisciplinary things that are also important and uh, connections. I think being outside of the department probably too, or not getting into the political thing of being in the same place or what have you. How do you how do you choose who do you pair the person with? That's a great question, Amy. I actually spend a lot of time thinking about the right peer supporter for every interaction. We're working on figuring out how to make that a machine learning sort of thing. Um, But I have had trouble giving that piece of our peer support program up because when I hear about an instance, and as as a former obstetrician, now just gynae surgeon, I do have a bit of a bias. There's, There's something about delivering a baby, or we've all been there at the AFE. We've been there at that horrible cesarean hysterectomy with a three liter blood loss, right? And I don't know if anybody else understands exactly that because it's not just one patient, it's two. And I think it's really hard for other doctors to wrap their heads around it. Again, that's my bias. So most of those really horrible obstetrical outcomes, they're actually supported by other obstetricians, be it in our own institution or outside at our system level. And similarly, for our OB anesthesia, we have a really robust OB anesthesia department at uh, Northwestern. And they, too, actually go through a lot of this trauma with our OB cases because, you know, they're basically running the codes, right, for the mom who just delivered a baby or whose baby has, you know, died or whatever horrible things have happened. And they, too, actually similar experience very similar PTSD. And sometimes I'll actually have our OB anesthesiologists support our obstetricians and vice versa to give them some some multi-specialty support, as you kind of mentioned. Usually I try to keep the supporters surgical with surgical, medical with medical, outpatient with outpatient, inpatient with inpatient, just to allow people to really be able to go in with a shared experience. That's really what peer support is all about, is getting supported by somebody who's had a similar experience, maybe not the exact same thing. But really, when they get into those peer support conversations, it's not about them sharing that experience that they've had, but being able to be empathic because they've shared it. And so not necessarily sharing their own experience, but hearing what the other person is going through and validating how they're feeling about it. No, that's it's so important. And I vulnerability is another one of those things that I think wasn't on display 
as a trainee. And it's something that in reading, you know, my, my grand in, in fellowship was about failure and how to, you know, embrace failure and, and how we as doctors are not very good at that. Um, but it's allowed me and encouraged me to be more vulnerable, not, you know, emotional, but just if something bad happened, you talk about it. At M&M, the goal was always to be the, the one, just don't have the worst case of the week because then they'll talk about that one and then not yours. They'll forget yours. Like you can have complications, just don't have the worst. But I'll bring up a case if, you know, mine wasn't the worst. I'll say, hey, can we talk about this case I had that was really hard and it didn't go well and I would love feedback. And people are like, why are you doing this? Or if things are hard and it's appropriate with the person I'm talking to to bring up, this is hard and I have really struggled with this thing. And to share those vulnerabilities, because I think part of it too is internalize so much of it. And this network is great because it's anonymous and it should be, and there's no recourse. Um, but I think when we're talking about, obviously that's, it's all case dependent, but in, in some ways, how we teach our trainees, our learners, the people that are coming after us, that this is the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to talk about these things. How, you know, going to a therapist 30 years ago is like, you create, you know, no way. And now, and now it's, you know, my brother says there's two kinds of people, those that have therapists and those that need them. But that, that we can normalize this kind of program, this type of behavior that is absolutely reasonable in every other uh, industry, um, that we make sure we support each other because this is a super high intensity position. You know, tell the residents every day, this job's hard enough. We don't need to make it worse by being rude to each other or those, than those things. But it is a hard job. There are many hard jobs out there. This happens to be one of them. Is the the peer support program usually around incidents or is it usually around like career malaise or is it around, you know, like bad at interaction or political situations in the department or how does that usually play out? Because what Mark is saying in terms of it just caught my interest peaked because there are so many scenarios where you could need support. So. We designed the peer support program really initially around adverse events. It was, you know, exactly what Mark described about having a bad event and needing to just talk about it, vent about it, and get supported about it, not necessarily even to get feedback or education per se. We've expanded that because we figured that that wasn't enough. You know, we went live right at the start of the COVID pandemic, and we realized very quickly we had to support people through COVID quarantine. So that was an event, right, COVID quarantine, where... All these ICU docs were st staying in hotels and trying to stay away from their families for fear of giving them disease, right? And so we very quickly, we transitioned and we also supported around COVID quarantine virtually. And then we have had some amazing, actually, we're calling them bolt-on programs to our PGP network. Uh, we had a doc who really went deep uh, in her scholars of wellness work in the idea of compassion fatigue. The idea that um, we work so hard, we care so hard for patients that when they don't do what we say, that we just get frustrated and give up and we start to disengage with our patients. And so this idea of training our peer supporters around this idea of compassion fatigue, because often the adverse event might be the tipping point that got them to us, but we have to understand a little bit about what that background is. Our next bolt-on program was uh, run by Dr. Maggie Mueller uh, in my department. So you're One of my junior residents. Yeah. Oh, she's amazing. Dr. Mueller um, really went deep into our peer review process, which I kind of mentioned, alluded to earlier, which was kind of punitive uh, and has actually made amazing changes with our immediate past chief of staff, Dr. Mike Schmidt, to change actually peer review at the hospital level. And she's now running peer review for gynecology in my department. 
she'd be a great guest on the show, I think, to talk a little bit about what peer review is and what that means. And she's an integral part of our PTP network as well. And so we really actually have a separate training for our supporters to now support around both peer review referrals. So if you get an interview for peer review, you also get um, uh, an email saying we have a supporter for you if you just need someone to support around this interaction because peer review in and of itself is stressful. We also now have worked with legal. We are able to support docs around some of the integral times of their legal cases, be it the time they get the case, uh, the time they're getting ready for deposition, the time they're potentially going to court. Um, so we actually uh, have peer supporters that are trained to support around that as well. And then our final and most recent add-on is what we're calling P2P Safer, and that's actually supporting docs around discriminatory patient situations where they feel they've been had a discriminatory patient situation. And, you know, historically, there wasn't a lot uh, in our organization, in really any organization, to protect physicians around that because there's so many laws around once they're your patient, you're kind of stuck with them. You have to continue to see them, despite potentially discriminatory or assaulting types of behaviors. And so we have worked with the hospital to improve some of our um, systems around that, but also to really create a support structure for doctors who experience that and have really trained an amazing group of doctors that's under the direction of Dr. Julia Vermillion, one of our hospital medicine doctors. And so it's really, really exciting to see so many people getting involved in the P2P network, seeing how we're continuing to expand. I can imagine that career distress and career progression can eventually fall under the bandwidth of P2P. But right now, we're looking more at individual events that happen and how we support around those. I can, I can see how going through the program once might even provide relief just knowing that the program exists. Like if you have a person come back the next time, like if something bad happens, going to bed that night, you at least know, okay, well, at least I've got this phone call to make on my list of things to do. Just knowing that it's there, I would imagine, would be extremely beneficial for, for people. Have you had any repeat customers and someone who's come back a second time and say, I'm, I'm, I'm back? We definitely have. Uh, people who've had a follow-up event and said, I would really appreciate peer support. And sometimes they request the same peer supporters. We have to kind of look back and figure out who that was. We've also had docs who've been supported who then came to us and said, I'd like to be a peer supporter. I think I'd be really good at this. And this is something that you know, I think I'd find really rewarding to like give back to my colleagues. Have you have you, have you ever said no? Oh, no. We always bring them in. We train them. If they want to do it, they must be good at this stuff. We had one particular interaction that's probably one of the most memorable for me. You know, there was a senior surgeon at our institution who I'd had some run-ins with. Wasn't the easiest guy to work with. Um, well, crotchety, retired now, but uh, you know, it's a number of years ago and I got a peer referral for him. And as I mentioned, I'd had some run-ins with him and I knew I couldn't support him because we didn't really get along. And so I referred him out to another senior proceduralist at the institution who's one of our supporters. And I gave our proceduralist just a little bit of warning. And actually they connected. The senior surgeon said, yeah, I'd love support. And his response was, I'm at, I've worked here for years. I'm actually shocked someone noticed I had a bad day in the OR and they cared to call. And that just, first of all, made my heart sink that that's how he felt after working at the institution for that long. But then I said, oh my goodness, look at the good we're doing that a senior surgeon who I never imagined would accept peer support actually had a good interaction. And that was his comment that he actually felt like somebody cared that day. I don't know, really telling, really telling story, I think. So. I'm curious, so can you refer somebody and they don't know that you are referred? That's correct. So 
uh, we'll get anonymous referrals, peer referrals. And usually it, then the, the email template we've sent out is my peer supporters reach out and say, hey, we heard you had a bad day. And we're here uh, as the peer support network. We're anonymous. I don't know you, but I'm here if you need to talk. And, uh, and that's how we do our reach outs. And, you know, I feel like we've been really successful. We have about a 50% take rate, I think. We don't have the exact numbers because we try not to track. But, you know, it's a, about 50% that say, hey, thanks for the email. I didn't think anyone noticed, but thank you. I'm doing okay. Or I have other people who respond and say, yeah, I want to know more about this program. Or, yeah, I think I could really use the support. So get all comers. Wow. I, I wonder how I would react if I... Got a, a referral. <laughs> oh, that was that was my first thought. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm I'll be so nervous if I had an institution. If like like just checking my email every day, somebody waiting to tell Mark he needs to get some help. I mean, it's great. I'm glad that people. It sounds like there's been really great uptake because um, I if I was like losing my noodle one day, but came around and I had a complication, I went, you know. And my fellow referred me or something. <laughs> just, you know, I guess I need help. <laughs> the phone calls coming from inside the house. <laughs> We've gotten a couple calls that are like, I don't know why I was referred. I'm like, as long as you're doing okay, we just wanted to check in. You know, we have had a couple responses such as that, that they didn't think that whatever the event was warranted a call or they didn't think it was that bad. But most of the referrals that we get, they're pretty, they're pretty serious complications. They're pretty serious events that clearly they've expressed distress over to someone. And so when they receive that, they don't necessarily always welcome it. They don't always want to connect. But I do think, again, just the reach out, just being present and being available if they need it, I think provides people a lot of reassurance. Absolutely. That's that's super interesting, though. I, I hadn't... Uh... I didn't know about that aspect of it. No, neither did I. That, that was amazing. Well, I mean, the whole program, Angela, is really incredible. And even though I felt like I had read more than some, maybe most about burnout and wellness and all the systems causes of it, I have to, I have to say, I don't think, and maybe it was just bitterness from like, you know, all the yoga sessions at four in the morning that we're supposed to solve these problems. But but the fact that you've been able to build a program focusing on the end user, right, as opposed to the, as the person who's burned out instead of the system, I think at first glance, I might have thought, oh, you're in the wrong place. But actually, what, what a powerful program you've built. What an amazingly important program you guys have, have got going on over there that are, like you said, meeting people where they are at their pain points. And I think that's something that has to be included in these wellness programs. I mean, part of addressing burnout, I mean, there are acute situations. So yes, systems need to change. That's going to take some time. And there's always going to be pressure points. So whatever system there is, no matter how good it is, like you said, there's going to be issues that you're going to have to figure out. But throughout all of that, you're going to have to make sure you have a support system to address the needs of the people that have those pain points at that time. So I I applaud you. I, mean, I, I think the world of you already, but now I just think it's even cooler. Um, that That's amazing. It really is. And I think that's something that I will bring back to my institution, think a lot about and talk to my leadership about it because there's clearly a need uh, for these programs across the country. So I, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, out of your evening, um, out of your life to share this with us because I do think this is something that all of us can benefit from. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. The views and opinions expressed 
by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.